Welcome to the CCF Podcast. We're a campus ministry at Truman State University. This podcast features sermons from our weekly worship services. Thanks for listening. Hey, um, welcome to CCF. Glad you're here. You are entering um, halfway into a series on 1 Corinthians. Here we go. This is She Work Part-Time at the Temple Diner or Living in a Society of Possible Gods and Goddesses or The Forces of Democratic Freedom Take a Loss Again, Derek. Hey, would you stand up for a second? This chapter's not that long, so I'm just going to read it. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence and that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords. Yet for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. However, not all possess this knowledge, but some through former association with idols eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience being weak is defiled. Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged, if his conscience is weak, to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Please sit down. It's a lot of food, a lot of eating. <clears throat> yep. Hey, let's imagine again, because um, remember, First Corinthians, we're listening in on a conversation from a long time ago in another place. We're only hearing one half of that conversation, foreign language, foreign time, foreign place, foreign culture. Okay, so let's try again to get into the mind of our house church in Webster Groves. Were you guys here last week when we talked about Webster Groves and Bill and Rick Rossi and Tony Galetti? (laughs) I got a a text message from Alan Smith just this week, just out of nowhere, that said, Tony Galetti's my cousin. (laughs) So imagine our house church in Webster Groves. Imagine you, yourself, you're living in that community. Now, imagine that you are relatively poor. (laughs) That may not be difficult for many of you. (laughs) You hardly ever really get to enjoy a good meal, except around the holidays. The feasts, you love the feasts, and you're excited because at the holidays, this one time of the year is when you can finally afford a perfectly cooked side of beef yourself. Normally, it's too expensive, but it turns out the best restaurant in St. Louis is having a special on prime rib. Why? Well, it so happens that your favorite spot is also 
attached to and operated by a big church that sits right next door to it, or like you might call it a temple. And the meat for the kitchen in the restaurant is supplied by the church. First United Apollos Church and Delicatessen is what we call it. Not only is everyone in your house church Italian, but the dominant religious vibe in our alternative universe Webster Grove is Greek pantheon. (laughs) So back to our thought experiment. How is it, why is it that this restaurant is being supplied by the church? Well, as part of the worship services, the UACD priest takes a cow, slaughters it, offers it to Apollos or whichever god, if you prefer a different temple down the street. There are lots of them. Um, and, And this offering sometimes involves a kind of dark ritual where the church folks in attendance they're taking and they're eating this meat that has been sacrificed as and and it's like they're kind of they're kind of taking in the sort of presence and power of their god into their own flesh when they eat as part of this sacrificial rite but then guess what when the service is over there are leftovers lots of meat left so the priest brings it next door to the to the chef who puts it on the grill And around holidays, when all of these festivals and services are going on, supply is high and cost is down. So you can order your meat to go. Or you can have it in the restaurant. Just chow down. So you make an order to have it catered to Bill's basement for the Christmas party. Now, enjoying one of these delicious cuts of meat, this is easy for you if you're just a guy or a girl who loves Christmas and you love beef and you've never even maybe you've never even sat in on one of these services where they're making these sacrifices to you like Apollos is like whatever that's a fairy tale and the whole ritual business that you heard about like that's a sham I don't know what those crazy people are doing in there to you a meat that has been offered to an idol is nothing more than just a fancy way of saying discount butchering You've only ever been like, you know, on the restaurant side and you've never been a congregant participating in the sort of inner workings of offering sacrifices. And so it is no problem for you to just savor that steak along with everybody else in Bill's basement in Webster Groves and howls on the guitar and you're worshiping. And then you go on and you do your Bible study on Exodus and it's all good. It's a pleasant evening. Like, why would there be any problem with that? But what if there was someone who started going to your house church, a new person, who maybe they used to like be employed over at the temple, or maybe they used to worship at one of these temples. Somebody who who wasn't just like a passive attendee, but somebody who like really perceived and really understood and was kind of locked into the significance of what these rituals and what these sacrifices actually meant. Somebody who understood, as N.T. Wright described it, the dark sense of mystery and fear, the sense that in feasting at the God's table, you were eating and drinking the God himself, taking his life to be your own life. What if there was somebody like that who was now coming to your Christmas party in Bill's basement? Wouldn't it be understandable if a person like that couldn't just like easily like sit down and chow down with you? Like if somebody who for so long in their life had associated with idols, 
by giving themselves over to these rituals and their kind of maybe dark meanings, like wouldn't it be understandable if they couldn't simply like dissociate the meat on the plate from how they had seen it used for years and years and for what purpose they had seen it used? Are you tracking with me? Could you see how they might like look at that on the China, on Bill's China, and they might feel like maybe a little squeamish? Like imagine the cognitive dissonance. And can you see like the, the cogs in their brain sort of spinning the internal compass, that needle is beginning to shake and it's beginning to wobble and maybe it's beginning to spin completely out of control and their conscience is like working overtime and they feel really conflicted and then they're feeling, maybe you could even call it defiled or contaminated, polluted, whatever you want to call it, but it's like a computer that gets a virus and then it's just like the color wheel of death like spinning, they go haywire. And they're like, wait, are you sure? Like, like Apollos has nothing to do with this, like what you're doing here? Is every, is this, are we sure this is okay? So if they're like, I don't know about this, or even like, I don't know about you doing this, maybe you could understand, hopefully you could understand if they're not just comfy with your holiday catering choice. Hopefully you could understand that. Sometimes we can be pretty self-centered though. And it seems like there were po folks that Paul is addressing in 1 Corinthians here in chapter 8 who actually maybe weren't very understanding, who weren't very empathetic towards these conscience-shaken people who were dwelling among them and worshiping among them. Apparently, there were some in our Webster Groves Corinthian hybrid alternate fantasy world church who cared more about being right or who cared more on, about insisting on what they had a right to do than they did about like the peace and well-being of some of the more maybe ignorant brothers and sisters among them. Now, if only we could imagine such a situation. Let's take a stroll through the chapter. Here are the first three verses. The opening statement in this chapter uh, which you've probably heard before, right, about knowledge, uh, like puffing up and love building up. You guys know this expression. This is like a pretty biting um, criticism from Paul. He's like, yeah, yeah, Paul says, we know you're smart. We know you know things about idols and the pagan rituals, and we know you know all about that, but knowledge just puffs up. What we're trying to build here is a temple of people and love is really the only thing that's able to bear our collective weight together in this thing that God's trying to construct. Like imagine a balloon and imagine the thinness and the fragility of an overinflated balloon that is just ready to pop at the slightest pinprick. That's what all of your knowing, even the, yeah, you, what you know is right, but pinprick away. That's knowledge. Now imagine the massive, immovable blocks. Okay, so check this out. This is actually the Temple Mount in Jerusalem in Israel. Leanne and I were there a couple years ago. And there are these blocks that create the base. This is what they're building the temple on. Um, go to the next picture. So you can kind of see here, this is, I outlined, this is one single block. Pretty cool. They had to haul these like a mile and a half from the quarry. I don't know how they did it. Slaves was how they did it. Herod, you know, he, we had a problem with him. We're not going to get into that right now. But you can see this block is like, I don't know, 15 feet long by, 
probably four feet wide by four feet tall. I think this is what, when Paul is talking about building a temple, this is the kind of thing that you can build on. He says, this is, this is what love is. Knowledge is just a stupid overinflated balloon. And if, if you think, if knowledge is all you have, you don't actually know anything, he says. Like, yeah, you can see through the illusions, all those silly things that those silly kids are worried about. Yeah, we know you're smart. And maybe you know all the God facts and you've got all your catechism memorized and you've got all your doctrines, your systematic, everything is lined out perfectly correctly. But Paul says, does God know you? Because the one known by God isn't the one who knows everything about God. Knowing everything about God doesn't mean God knows you. But he says the one who loves God is the one known by God. And then he goes on, the next few verses. And of course, listen, knowledge isn't bad. Paul affirms the position from, from one way of looking at it. Okay, you're right, he says. Like he quotes his words back to them. Idols aren't real. Check. Got that. We know. There's no God but one. Check. Yes, you're right about that too. It's like Paul is saying, I'm with you. If idols aren't real, there's only one God, our Father, one Lord, Jesus Christ. Then obviously we know there's nothing wrong about eating the meat. This is like a cultural thing, not like a real deeply like moral kind of thing. So yes, I am glad that you, smart person in Webster Groves or Corinth, I'm glad that you and your your internal compass are compass are seeing things really clearly. I'm happy for you. However, not everyone knows everything you do, and that should matter to you. It should matter to you that not everybody understands things the same way that you do. And you don't just get to be a bulldozer and do whatever you have a right to do, even if you are right, without having consideration for your brothers and sisters who don't know what you know. Because if you do that, you might actually be giving them license to do something that, yes, we know it's fine and it's okay, but they actually don't know if it's okay. And so it would be really wrong for them to do that. And you would be manipulating and twisting and controlling and dominating them in a way that is not, this is not Christ-like. This is not love. Just because that person is mistaken doesn't mean that they're wrong to be conflicted. You follow? Think, Paul insists, think of the one who has come out of a life of temple sacrifice and consider all that must be going on in their mind whenever there's a stake put in front of them from one of these rituals. Like think of them thinking of dark rooms and low chants and the smell of animal blood and the imposing carved stone figure of a god. Think of them thinking of that. And this person, they want to be faithful to God. They earnestly do. Is there room for them to grow and learn some stuff about the, the reality of the food that's being offered. Yes, of course, absolutely. There's room for them to grow. But the way to help them mature isn't just to like put something in front of their face and say, it's no big deal, man. Or to be like, nom, 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 this is so good. It's no big deal, man. Changing someone's mind about this sort of thing is a process that takes time and it takes patience and it takes probably more than one real conversation where people are like, they, they feel trusting enough to be vulnerable with each other about their experiences. Okay, let's stop here for a second.
I don't think any of you know anybody that's like sacrificing meat to idols on a Saturday night. Max is, you do? It's John, John Z is the one doing it. Uh, I, we, we're not worried about this kind of stuff, right? Because it's a long time later and we don't, we don't live the lives that these people lived in the Bible. I, I mean, I think if anything, we have a problem the other direction, instead of being like overly concerned about are there demons in this meat, uh, we, <laughs> that's a weird, <laughs> weird new sentence. Um, but like, we don't worry about any material thing having any kind of real significance or spiritual anything. Like there, for us, there are no, there are no more sacred groves, as Annie Dillard said. And so the idea of somebody not eating meat because it's like somehow associated with like idol worship, that's like totally alien to us. But I think we can understand the phenomenon of someone being totally comfortable with something that someone else may really struggle with in their own conscience. Yes? Something that for one person is like just a thing, no big deal, and for another person it is closely connected with something that is like destructive or harmful or shameful, or idolatrous. Something that one person can just genuinely live with in like a really carefree way while another person feels they really have to avoid it because they have a genuine desire to live faithfully with God and they can't see how those two things can go together. So I want to take a second, turn to your neighbor, and I want you to talk about whatever those things might be. There could be many of them, um, and I don't have a right answer in my pocket, so turn and discuss, go. Okay, let's hear it. What are some of the things? Yes. Tattoos. tattoos. I promised Leanne I would never talk about my tattoos in front of everybody, so I'm not doing that. Next. Yes. Sex, drugs, alcohol. Like, as a, never mind. <laughs> uh, okay. Yes. Cussing, language. Yes, I think that's, yep. Who else? Anybody else? Forms of worship? Say more. Ah, okay. So speaking in tongues and using instruments or not is what Zach said. Okay. Any others? Yes? Movies, movies like rated R movies. Is that what you were going to say? Okay. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There are a lot of things um, that maybe kind of land in this area of conscience. Um, I'm going to talk about alcohol. Um, kind of a, but as a way of like looking at this thing as a whole, um, and I think alcohol is relevant in the time of life that you are in because college, I was in college, I know how college is, and like also the, the added like there are some of you who are like of age and some who are not, and then some of you are also coming from church backgrounds where it was okay and others were coming from backgrounds where it was definitely not okay, and you're all kind of in this like mixing pot right here. Um, here's the truth. Actually, Zach, while I was listening in on his and Shane's conversation and he mentioned alcohol, um, and he mentioned like addiction in his family. Uh, some people come from like an experience where their lives have been destroyed by alcohol. It's like, there's something really dark about the way that it is used and how they've seen it used. 
Um, some have destroyed their own lives with it. Some have destroyed others' lives with it. Like for some, even just the smell of alcohol immediately recalls a way of living that they know, maybe for themselves or in the life of someone else who is close to them, they know is deeply unfaithful to God and in which that leads to worshiping all the wrong things. And a person who has an experience like this can't really even, it's, it's almost impossible to conceive of like what is a way of partaking that doesn't lead to idol worship and that doesn't lead to harm. For some, uh, even in their university experiences, the, the phenomenon of alcohol is just hopelessly tangled up in irresponsible, reckless, dark kinds of places and situations. Does that make alcohol evil? Of course it doesn't. Of course it doesn't. Paul would agree, I think, with those uh, who would say, yeah, uh, like, you know, caveats of age, um, responsibly, etc. But, you know, if you feel free, if you feel free to drink, I think he would agree with that. Like alcohol, it's, a, you know, created by God, like many other things. It won't commend us to God, I think he would say. We're no worse off if we don't drink. We're no better off if we do. You have a right to it? Sure. Are you free to consume it? Sure. But then how are we to live in a community with folks who feel very differently about it? Especially if we're not just going to be like, you go to that corner and I'll go to this corner and we'll pretend that alcohol doesn't exist or that each other doesn't exist. What about when something that is my perfect right is being infringed upon because there's somebody else in my circles or in my community that thinks that it's wrong or thinks that it's ridiculous or they think they have a, a conscience about it. And some of you, like you hear this and you already think this conversation is like kind of dumb. Like it makes no sense to our mind, this is a very American way of being, that the way someone else feels about something should affect the way that I get to act about it. Since no idea, I think, could be more countercultural to us Americans than that, here are a few just kind of operational principles that I want to pull out that I see in this chapter that can maybe help guide us as a community in dealing with this or with things like this. Not all possess this knowledge. Remember that not everyone knows everything. And while you're remembering that, remember that you don't either. You don't know everything. You don't know why somebody might be uncomfortable with it. You don't know why they are critical of it. When they see your alcohol, your holiday filet mignon in Bill's basement. Like we tend to just assume that the people that disagree with us are ignorant and dumb. But the truth is we don't know. We don't know why. So let's start there. We don't know why. They may have a perfectly good reason for having a conscience about it. Not everybody knows everything you do. Not everybody has the same past or experience that you do. Food will not commend us to God. Remember, too, that even if you know the truth, if you're one of the enlightened ones, that's like, yeah, it's no big deal to, like, say a cuss word. Like, we know that all words are just, like, arbitrarily made up. Blah, 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 blah. So what is these phonemes? Why is that any more immoral than those phonemes? Blah, blah, blah. Sorry. <laughs> It just Ella touched a nerve with me when she called me out for not knowing the meaning of etymology, <laughs> which I did. Okay, recenter, back to the page. Remember, 
even if you know the truth about these things, you aren't better if you do it. It does not make you better. And they're not worse if they don't, and vice versa. Life consists, listen to me, people, life consists in more than just whatever it is you have a right to do. Take care that this right of yours, <laughs> take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. This is the part that feels almost exactly backwards. If it's my right, that means I don't have to take care, right? I get to do it. You can get over it. You can toughen up. How many, the, the ultimate, indefensible, infinity force field of every playground argument, it's a free country. Exercise your rights as freely as you like because someone died to give them to you, right? I don't have to take care that my right, does, I don't care what you think about it. Mm. Scripture says, take care. Be careful with what you have a right to because your like freedom in the scriptures as has been talked about several times this semester is, is not how we typically define it. Like we think of freedom as just don't get in my way when I want to do what I want to do. Unfettered opportunity to just do whatever I have a right to do. Scripture says freedom's not exactly doing whatever you want, rather serve one another's in love. This is your freedom. Do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but rather serve one another in love. Freedom is being bound to Christ's love wherever then that takes you in loving others. That's what you're free to do. Someone died to free you to a high... Jesus, that was a Jesus, a little clever. To free you to a higher way of living, that's true, from being enslaved. Whatever you want, whenever you want it, is actually a form of slavery. Even if that thing is a totally fine thing, a totally value-neutral thing. So don't let your rights make others stumble. Stumbling block? <laughs> this is like a Christianese term. Does anybody like have a history with the term stumbling block? Like did you hear this talked about in church growing up? I was, I think maybe it's a generational thing for me. Um, what does it mean to be a stumbling block? What I was told was that girls shouldn't wear certain clothes because then they'll make boys think naughty things. And so your job is to control the feelings of the boys in the room. I'm all for modesty, but I'm also for boys taking responsibility for themselves. I don't think that's what stumbling block is about in this context. To be a stumbling block means that you are forcefully or accidentally empowering somebody to do something that they're actually not ready to do yet because their conscience doesn't permit them. There's an interesting principle here uh, at work that requires some discernment. So in Romans, Paul says, nothing is unclean in itself. We know this, but it is unclean for someone if they think it is unclean. Steak, alcohol, whatever, like your conscience about it actually is the thing that is, it has this sort of alchemical effect of it can become good or bad to do depending on your conscience about it. And so if somebody has a conscience about it and whatever you're doing is causing them to be like, yeah, I don't need that conscience. It actually is okay, guys. Like I saw it on the poster and I'm going to do it too. That is what a stumbling block is. And so Paul says that you and I, you have an obligation as much as you can help it to not make others stumble. And so maybe a helpful question for us, for each of us is like, hmm, 
when it comes to like alcohol or when it comes to the language that I use around whichever people I'm using it around, how am I maybe empowering them to defy their conscience? He goes on to say, if anyone sees you who have knowledge, if anyone sees you have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged? To which I'm like, wait, what? So now if I'm just like observable by anybody who happens to be walking around, and I hate to say it, but it, it seems like other people's perception of you actually does matter. Because the truth is, you don't often get a chance to explain yourself to people who might be observing you. And so Paul's advice in light of this is be cautious. Be cautious. Shockingly, the responsibility is on you. So if it's, if it's alcohol and you know that your other, you're, you're, you're going to be someplace that there's like, people are going to see you there. And if you know that they might have a conscience about it or it's possible, Paul says, you know, you, you might, maybe it's just better to abstain this time. Maybe it's better to set aside the thing that you would like to do for the sake of this other person and not causing them to do something that they're not okay actually doing. It's interesting to just observe your inner reactions as I'm talking about this stuff. Like, do you immediately feel the need to justify yourself? Or do you immediately feel the need to make them defend their position and their weak conscience? Do you jump to, well, like, like they can get over it. Do you think like, well, if I abstain, that's just like, that's like caving in. That's like pretty petty and lame. They're just controlling my life. And you're just like, it's a principle of the thing. I got autonomy and I got to be able to, I'm not going to live in fear. But is, I mean, maybe it's possible. I don't know. But maybe it's possible depending on the way you react to what I'm saying. Like maybe you have become too attached to whatever this thing is if you can't just easily like set it aside for another time. I'm not telling you quit forever. I'm just saying like this time, if this is like such a hard, like maybe we're a little too attached. Maybe. And mind you, again, we can be talking about more than alcohol here. Um, like maybe, is it possible that the best thing for your neighbor and their conscience is just for you to like actually keep silent on your opinion about something right now? Or no, really, like maybe if you think you know something, some of you have like, you know, you get into theological conversations and you like think you know something about God that's maybe like a little edgy or like progressive or something. But like depending on the person you're talking to, like maybe this is not the time to just unload on them and be like, well, what I know, because I've been studying this for the last eight years and that thing that you said that you heard at Sunday school one time that you've never thought about since then, that's really stupid and let me tell you why. Eh, maybe that's not a very charitable way of being. Read. Are you saying then, are you saying that the few people who are easily offended get to go around dictating what everyone else can and can't do? <laughs> Derek's eagerly leaning forward because he wants to hear me answer my question. Are you saying that we need to just make a new rule for everyone every time anyone says they have a conscience about something? Do we have to just universally always walk on eggshells constantly in fear of who might see us and what they might think. What do you think I'm going to say, Derek? <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I don't think so. I think living generously and charitably in a community is a two-way street. And both the, uh, both the free folks and the conscience-bound folks have some skin in the game 
have some things to consider. And neither one gets to make all the rules, okay? Neither side gets to make all the rules. So I think we don't have to walk on eggshells, maybe for at least a couple of reasons. First, so weak conscience. We've been talking about somebody with a weak conscience, who again, maybe is somebody who has like genuine, earnest experiences, and their desire, again, is like they want to live faithfully. And their experiences that make them think a thing about whatever it is that we're talking about, right? That's a person with a weak conscience. Um, there are good reasons. Like just reiterating, there are good reasons to abstain. But there are also bad reasons for why someone might think that, like, well, you shouldn't drink. For example, no one should drink because it's sinful and it's, like, improper and it offends me when you, because I know that Christians shouldn't drink and so you can't. And it's going to distress me if you do. Or like, I know that like the highest standard that we can strive for of like purity and piety is just to like live a clean life and abstain completely. And so everybody should do what I do because don't you all want to achieve the highest level like me? Listen, this, this person who says this kinds of things, this is not a well-intended though understandably fearful person with a weak conscience, okay? This is not a person with a weak conscience. This is a legalist with a strong conscience. This kind of person is very sure of their own correctness, and then they are, they, listen, they are in no danger of denying their convictions, okay? Simply like making somebody feel offended is not the same as causing them to stumble. They're not stumbling their moral police. And these folks, they don't get to go around deciding what everybody does because they can like raise a fuss when they see something they don't like. How then though, like how do we live alongside people who genuinely do have a weak conscience? Because maybe like in their life, alcohol has been handcuffed to destruction and darkness. People who are, who are really uncomfortable with that or with other certain issues because they have a genuine desire, again, to be obedient to God. To those, I think, I think what we have to learn to do is to say with, like, sensitivity but also confidence, like, you don't need to change your mind immediately on this or maybe even ever, but there is room for some interpretation here, and we can dialogue about that. Like, the person who is fine with drinking isn't the only one that has a responsibility put on them to be considerate. So like in Romans, Paul says that the partaking person, you're, you're a drinking person, um, you shouldn't look down on the one who abstains. You don't look down your nose and you're like, eh, you weak-conscienced, misinformed, mistaken, cotton-headed ninny-muggins. You don't, you don't say that. But also the person who abstains, you don't get to judge and condemn the person who partakes. So avoid passing judgment and maybe admit that there's something that you don't know. And if you are a troubled person, when you see somebody else having a drink, like you saw them out at TK Prime, the new steakhouse, and you're like, are they drinking a beer? They're like a CCF leader. What? Like maybe just have the good graces to go and have, if you have a problem, go have an honest conversation. And rather than just like condemning and going around and being like, can you believe blah, 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 blah. So in summary, here it is. To the one who partakes, take care. 
Don't insist on your rights. Use your freedom to serve. Be careful about who sees you, but live freely knowing that you cannot control every situation. And that works when the one who abstains, here's to you, try to be open about what you don't know. Continue to abstain until your conscience allows it without trying to force your conscience to allow it. And be gracious with those where you see their freedom is making you uneasy. Simple, right? <laughs> I, I wonder, like, wouldn't it be easier if everybody just went their own way and did their own thing and nobody had to worry about offending or being offended? Am I my brother's keeper? Well, maybe not. But remember that that was the first thing that Cain said right after he had killed his brother. Paul's response, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. He's just said, I know that this isn't anything like we know this, but if it's going to be a problem for them, I will never eat. it. I'm not saying that has to be the attitude that you have to take, but look at his attitude. I'll never do it if it's going to make them stumble because no one thing that I could have or do or no one like cool cuss word that I could ever say or whatever the thing is could ever matter more to me than my brother than living in peace with my brother. And I wonder, like, you know what would actually make this easier, Paul? Like, we'll, we'll stick together. But can't you just, like, wouldn't it be nice if you just gave us some rules? Like, wouldn't, like, a legal system perfectly spelled out just be much easier? Like, either anybody drink whenever you want. That's my rule. Or nobody ever drink ever again. It's just whichever. I don't care. Whichever one. Just so clean, right? So clean. If A, then B. Not if A, then B, unless C, in which case D, or unless E, in which case B sub 1. Like, wasn't it, it just, I can hear, I can hear the Israelites in the wilderness wandering around. They've left their life in Egypt where, yes, they were enslaved, but also, like, there was a very, like, clear hierarchy and, like, a, like a routine and the things you're supposed to do and the ways that you're allowed to do this and that. And they're like, wouldn't it, they said themselves, it was a lot better when we were back there. Wouldn't it be better if we were back there instead of wandering around in the wilderness and the freedom of God in Bill's basement? Like maybe it would just be better if we could just, somebody could just give me a command for every possible situation and that I never had to think or actually love someone. And I could just, you just do the thing. But then like that would be Pharaoh guiding us and not God. And God has given us one law. One law, the law to love him, to love one another as he loved us and as we love ourselves. Love, it's, that's it. That's, it's the law beneath all the laws. And it is the one law, ultimately, by which we are bound. And both fortunately and unfortunately for us, the law to love as Christ loved, it requires just a lot of discernment and a lot of decision and a lot of conversations. And sometimes it means this, while other times it means that, the law of love, it is one thing, and it is also everything. It is very simple, and it is also incredibly profound and complex. And we have the mind of Christ. This is what C.S. Lewis said. He said, the load or weight or burden of my neighbor's glory should be laid daily on my back. A load so heavy that only humility can carry it and the backs of the proud will be broken. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses, to remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, 
If you saw it now, you would strongly be tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. Could be you, could be me, the person sitting to your right or left. And he says, all day long, we are to some degree helping each other to one or other of these destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all our dealings with one another, all friendships, all love, all play, all politics. So, <laughs> maybe our very American obsession with rights and personal freedom is actually setting us up for failure. Like maybe what I have a right to do and ensuring that I maintain the right to do it, maybe that's a faulty mindset. If what you want is to imitate a Jesus who did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Maybe if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat. Maybe that is more sustainable, even if it's way more difficult for a people who are trying to be the body of Christ together for the sake of the world. Because that's what Paul is ultimately saying. The trajectory of your brother or your sister matters more than your personal rights. And so, may the burden of my neighbor's glory be laid daily on my back. And may we help one another get where we are headed. And may we have the humility to listen and to care. And may we love God. And may we be known by God. Let's pray. <clears throat> Here we are, Lord, and we confess that we think we know all the things. We confess that we uh, often fall into the trap of knowing how right we are. It's just fine to be right. And it also just kind of doesn't matter if we can't love the people who are around us, if we cannot be considerate of them. I think, Lord, that if it were easy to live as the body of Christ, we wouldn't have a New Testament. We wouldn't need it. Thank you for Paul and Paul's letters. Pray this semester that we can be shaped, shaped into the image of Christ by the words in 1 Corinthians. Help us to love one another as you have loved us. Amen.